Welcome to Imagine With Us with Rabbi Michael Lerner and Kat Zavis. In this episode, Why Aren't More People Progressive Part 2, we step back and look at the dynamics of human life in the past 10,000 years that continue to shape how we understand our options for achieving security, safety, and peace. To begin with, we need to understand that in the tens of thousands of years in which human beings lived before, quote, civilizations were developed, there were two important elements of human experience. On the one hand, we were prey to other animals, meaning we were their food source, and we had to figure out how to both keep ourselves safe from predatory animals and also feed ourselves. On the other hand, we experienced human solidarity, caring for each other, as well as awe and wonder at the universe. And we developed practices, rituals, and celebrations that became the roots of spiritual and religious traditions and life. With the invention of agriculture in parts of China, the Near East, and Egypt, some people began to have a somewhat steady and predictable source of food and developed the need and felt the need to protect and defend their food source, namely the land, against others who were still hunters and gatherers. Eventually, this developed into a notion of land ownership, known as private property, by those who had more power to control the land, and also into class society and patriarchy. And as they developed this land ownership and as class society and patriarchy developed, there was also a search for continued meaning in their lives beyond their daily struggles. So by approximately 6,000 years ago, we see emerging more clearly two fundamentally different worldviews about how to provide safety and security for human life. In one worldview, we'll call that worldview the worldview of domination and fear, we are taught that we come into this world on our own, as if we are thrown into it and have to struggle and fight to survive, as if we're still on the plains fighting against the animals that are trying to eat us. What is deemed rational or realistic in this worldview then is to take care of yourself, to maximize your own self-interest without regard to others because everyone else is going to be doing the same thing. This worldview is one that tells us that the way to succeed and ensure your own well-being is to look out for yourself. If you don't do so, then you will be taken advantage of by others who are seeking to ensure their own well-being and who will do so without regard to you or your needs. In other words, in order to get ahead and be safe and secure in this world, you have to dominate or control others. Something important to understand about these worldviews is that they also operate in the world of work, within ourselves, within our social justice work. They are infused throughout our world and our society. This fundamental worldview of domination and fear bumps up against the second worldview, namely that of interdependence and love. In this worldview, we recognize that we come into the world through another, namely a mother, and that to thrive in the world, we need to be nurtured, cared for, and love. If we do not receive that initial love and nurturance in the form of touch, care, food, etc., we will fail to thrive. And in fact, we know that the more support, love, and care we have in our lives, the more we thrive. Another aspect of this worldview of love is that of the experience of awe and wonder of the universe, which of course flows from and begins with this awe of life itself. This worldview of love is the foundation of all spiritual and faith traditions, 
all ethical teachings. And that is that every human being, all life form, is sacred. And that every person is worthy of being treated with respect and dignity for no reason whatsoever, regardless of what you have or have not done or accomplished, but simply because of who you are. You don't, do not have to do anything or prove anything or act in any particular way. You are just worthy of love. You are awesome. And that is your inheritance and that is your fundamental right. This worldview of love, where people are seen and accepted unconditionally, has been seen as a threat to the worldview of domination and has led ruling elites to try to eventually use their power to subvert the loving energy of people themselves and of spiritual and religious communities by using their wealth and power to become leaders in those communities and to subordinate but not fully eliminate the love and caring messages in those communities. These two worldviews also impact our relationship not only with each other, but also with Mother Earth itself and the universe and nature. So that through this worldview of love and interdependence, this spiritual worldview, if you will, Mother Earth is seen as sacred. And we need to be in right relationship with Mother Earth, be stewards of the Earth to ensure its well-being and longevity, just as we need to do so with all other life forms. When looked at through the lens of the miracle of all life, one cannot help if we give ourselves the time to slow down, to take in the absolute awe, wonder, and radical amazement of the universe in which we live. Whether it is the birth of a child or any animal, the budding of flowers after a rainy spring day, the celebration of the first fruits of the season, a sunset that fills the sky with wonder, the dappling of light in the forest, the mist coming off the water, or the glory and majesty of the highest snow-capped mountains, this world we live in, this body we inhabit, this universe that surrounds us, is completely and totally awesome and amazing. And it behooves us to take time every day to slow down enough to bask in the glory of it all. Okay, I'd like to jump in here for a minute just to say that what keeps these worldviews going is the actual experience that people have First of all, in the world of domination, as they look around in class and patriarchal societies, they see that it is in fact the case that many people have power and control and will use their power and control to dominate and control you and others, your family and other people that you care about, unless you develop the techniques of domination and control yourself. And that gives people an incentive to take seriously the worldview of domination and to teach themselves how to be more successful at dominating, manipulating, controlling others for fear that if they don't have those skills, that others will dominate and control them. And this is a reality of class and patriarchal societies that pushes many people to believe that this is the only reality. On the other hand, we have the experience that every single person has of coming into this world and being sustained in the first few years of our lives only because a mother or a mothering other, someone taking that role, or the community of people in tribal realities and sometimes even in non-tribal realities, a loving community, caring for and taking care of you while you had no way of providing for your food, providing for your sustenance. Some of the early 
testing that was done around what makes it possible for the children to survive in those early years focused on a very important question. Is it just that you were getting material support from people, namely the food being placed there? And so the tests that were done by a psychologist named Spitz and others showed that only when the children were held lovingly, cared for in that way, not just in terms of providing their material needs, but also giving them love, could they survive for a very long time. Those who didn't get that, the psychologists developed a fancy word for it. They said, okay, failure to thrive. Well, failure to thrive led many of these children dying. In other words, the, the loving and caring energy is not just that they're supplying you with food. It's that they're actually acting in a loving and affirming way towards you, even in your first few years of life. And that that's what makes it possible to survive. Now, that from that develops the consciousness that maybe real security could be achieved through caring for others rather than simply dominating others. The subversive part of religious traditions, often sustained by the women in those traditions, although not only women, is the part that says, no, you don't need to have domination and control to survive. You need love and caring and kindness and generosity. And that's the right path. And of course, from the standpoint of those who had power in those communities by virtue of their having been successful in the world of domination and control, that teaching was always one that was uh, subversive and needed to be, uh, let's say, uh, trivialized or at least made to be feel like, oh, this is for some future world, afterlife, heaven, or some other place like that. But it's unrealistic to expect it in this world. But that element of religion and spiritual practice has remained an important alternative worldview that we all have inside of us, even as we all have also heard repeatedly and, and often come to believe that the world is shaped by the, the dominators and not the lovers or the carers for others. So as you've just articulated again, these two worldviews operate at all times in society, and importantly, they operate within each of us, in every single one of us. These worldviews pop up and down depending on the circumstances we're in at a particular moment, and also depending on how we've been treated throughout our life. So whether we're more inclined to operate from a worldview of love and interdependence, or from a worldview of fear and domination, depends on so many factors, such as how we're raised, the messages we hear from other people, from media, from politicians, where the social energy is at any particular time. So in other words, when as a society, we experience and feel great fear around 9-11, for example, or throughout the past four years, Trump has been the bullhorn of a fear-based worldview, then we tend to feel fear. And that is part of why many of us felt a sense of release in our bodies when we learned that Biden had won the election, because we realized we could let go of some fear that was both real, but also just part of the energy of social energy that has been permeating throughout our society for the past four years. So when you hear that the world is a dangerous place again and again, then what happens is you turn inward to protect yourself, to protect your way of life, to protect your community or to protect your country from perceived 
others, from perceived outsiders, from people we perceive to be dangerous to our well-being. Whereas if you hear the message that the world is safe, that you're going to be fine, that we can take care of everyone. That there is enough. That there is enough, that you are enough then you are more likely to respond to others and the world from a place and from a spirit of generosity and openness. And that this is never some static reality. As Kat was saying, that there's social energy that influences us. So we could imagine people being on a a continuum between the worldview of fear and the worldview of love. And where any one of us is at any uh, given moment is affected by all the things that Kat was mentioning including where the social energy in the larger society is going. So when the social energy moves more towards fear, then the stories that we have heard about the need for domination and control seem to be obvious and uh, intuitive. They have a uh, stronger voice in our head at that moment. Right. And so they're seen as common sense. But then when the social energy starts to move more towards the possibility of love and caring, then the stories that we hear that sustain that view that are taught in various religions and in spiritual movements and kept alive in secular form in at least the most successful progressive movements, then you get individuals feeling, okay, I can go with that part of my being, and those parts feel more real. So each of us has both our own continuum, and we are part of a larger societal continuum in which the energy flows in one direction or another. And so when we say social movements, we want to need a movement. And what we mean by that is the movement of energy from fear to hope and despair and even fascism becomes the movement of social energy from love to total domination and control. This is never finally fixed. It's continually open to new possibilities of change. So after 9-11, the social energy moved very much towards fear. But then as we, that fear led us into a crazy war in Iraq and people felt, wait a second, we're really going in a wrong direction. Then it was possible for Obama to come forward and say, hey, we need to move towards a hope. And hope is where, what we want in the society. But then after a few years of his administration, when he had not come through for people in that way, when he had been elected on hope, but then had ended up not really bailing out millions of people who were losing their homes, uh, then fear started to reemerge in people. And hence, by the 2010 election, you get the reemergence of the voices of fear in collective politics, and that then reverberates and has been reverberating ever since. So I just want to offer an invitation to you after this podcast, when you're talking with somebody or reading an article or watching the news or any television program or the radio, just ask yourself, take a moment, ask yourself, is the person that's speaking or the article that you're reading promoting a worldview of domination and fear or worldview of love, generosity and interdependence? And just so you start to become aware of how often these two voices are bombarding us, and then notice how it impacts you. Notice how the worldview of fear that's being articulated impacts you and how the worldview of hope 
and love impact you so that you can just start to become aware of these different voices in our society because as we start to raise our consciousness and understand this it'll help us have a deeper understanding of the divide in our country and i'll add here that when we're talking about the domination of the the worldview of domination its best friend and closest ally is (laughs) cynicism okay cynicism about the possibility of a different world cynicism about the possibility of winning any struggles against the dominators cynicism about it happening fast enough to save our planet from environmental destruction cynicism is the closest friend of domination and fear and it might be the voice that maybe pops up more quickly in your head when you're experiencing yourself in the worldview of love and interdependence, that voice may actually be more dominant for you than the voice of fear. It's going to be the voice of, oh, I really want this world, but it's not possible. It's going to come so quickly that that cynicism and self-doubt and doubt of the possibility of a transformed world pops up even probably more quickly for some of us than fear about a different world. So if you keep in mind, even when you're listening to a speech or a talk of somebody who is a progressive, because progressives sometimes have used fear as a motivator and not realizing that actually in the long run that undermines the possibility of winning a progressive transformation. On the other hand, the dominators have sometimes used love as part of their message in order to win over people. So um, this is how, when people say, I can't imagine how anybody could be in that religion that is advancing reactionary ideas. Well, you have to go into that religion and hear, because you'll often find that even religions that are on the side of the dominators keep their people in, and by also offering love and caring inside inside the community itself, even though that is not directed out towards anybody who's not part of that particular religious community. It's a very insular manifestation of a loving and caring society. It's almost xenophobic in its manifestation. We're going to love and care those who look like us, who think like us, who believe like us. But when you're in that bubble, it feels really good. It feels (laughs) loving. And it feels loving and caring because it is for you. So if we want to move the social energy away from fear and domination toward love and care and compassion and interdependence, then we need to engage in our social change movements. We need to engage in the broader left, in the media, to bring into this discourse the language of love, the actual language of loving, of caring, not just have it be part that motivates us and guides us because it is for so many involved in social change movements and so many people on the left, but we need to actually use that language. So what do you think it is that has made that difficult? Because we hear it, I know I've heard it spoken periodically, sometimes in certain circles at certain times, even Bernie used the word love once in a while. But what is needed or what's interfered with the left's efforts to really embrace it as the guiding or one of the guiding principles of the left? Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, my book, Revolutionary Love, is all about this. (laughs) It's all all about the obstacles and how to overcome them. But I'm not going to try and summarize that right now, but I'd say on the largest scale, I think it's important to realize that the left in the Western world emerged in a struggle with feudalism. 
It was part of that struggle against the feudal order. The feudal order defended huge economic inequality and domination of people by saying, this is what God wants. God has appointed us and God has set, selected where you're going to end up and there's no changing of where you end up. You're born into it and you stay there. In the struggle against that, the capitalist order emerged and I would have been on the side of the, the bourgeoisie, the capitalists in that struggle because what they were saying was, no, we need to have more freedom and we need to have a worldview that allows people to work out their own choices about who, what they're going to do with their lives, what kind of occupation they'll have, where they live and so forth. I'm all for that. I think it was very important to beat the, the feudal order. But the way they ma managed to do that was to develop an alternative view to worldview to the worldview that God was running the world. And that worldview said that if you want to have understanding of reality, then the only way you can do that is to look at it from from the standpoint of is whatever you're saying verifiable through empirical data that is data that you can get through your eyes and your ears or your touch and body etc or through measurement and if something can't be measured and and it can't be be verified through your sense data then it does not deserve your respect it has no place in our public life. So this worldview became really the dominant religion that we're all living in. And of course, if it's a dominant religion, you don't even think of it as a religion. You think of it as, oh, well, this is just common sense. But that very word common sense is, is a proof of the dominance of the view that what's real and what deserves our, uh, our support is sense datum. Now, love, kindness, generosity, and actually not just that, but all of ethics, all of our ethical judgments, all of our aesthetic judgments, none of that can be verified through sense datum or measured. So what you get is a trivialization of ethics so that people feel like, oh yeah, ethics isn't, isn't appropriate. For example, if I'm a professional, I shouldn't bring in my personal ethics. Uh, if I'm working on uh, in some uh, any sphere, I shouldn't bring in my personal stuff there. And the ethics and uh, all of the things that can't be verified are really just personal feelings that we have, not objective realities. In trivializing that, they disempowered all of those of us who want to build a different kind of world based on a view that the current uh, world is unethical, that the destruction of the planet is unethical, etc. But you can't verify that by the sense datum. You can, the sense datum can tell you that over a certain amount of time, the release of fuels from the earth is going to poison the earth. But that's just a fact. And facts don't have any power unless they are connected to some kind of worldview that says this is wrong. It's wrong to do this. Leave the fossil fuels, destructive fossil fuels in the earth. So what we get then is this radical separation Split. of facts and values. And, um, and that worldview was inherent in Marx. Marx said he wasn't just going to tell you about what a good life is. Marx said, no, here, um, I'm, I'm going to show you the laws of development of society. I'm going to make them like the laws of nature. 
the fact is that once you go to that, you build a left that says, we want to show that we're just as scientific as the scientists. We're just as uh, objective as the scientists. And they built a left that was antithetical to ethical considerations or to anything that really, and, and particularly love, kindness, and generosity, because they were quintessential realities that could not be measured and could not be verified through sense datum. So the way this translates into the present moment is that when you go to, uh, I have gone to people who are prof professionals who are progressives, progressive professionals, and I say, hey, you would be more effective if you would talk about the vision of a world based on caring and love and uh, taking care of the planet and so forth. And they say back, no, that'll make us look soft without real power. And uh, if you want to be taken seriously in the public realm, you've got to show that you, you're just as strong as those dominators. The other yeah. thing that happens in this, I'm going to jump in here for a moment, sorry, yeah. is that when you articulate, I've had this experience in the trainings that I've led with people who really do want a world based on love and kindness, but then they say, they get caught up in the language of, but how are we going to measure that? How can we prove we're being successful, quote unquote, if we're creating that world? And so it also plays out in that way. Right, exactly. In other words, once you have the vision that anything that's valuable is something that can be measured, then, then clearly love, kindness, and generosity are not going to be measured and hence not to be taken right. seriously. Although we all know when we experience love and generosity and kindness and we see it manifest in the world so many times. And I'm just thinking about in the times of COVID or in other times of crises, when people reach out for help to complete strangers and GoFundMe campaigns, the amount of money that they often receive far exceeds what they're asking. And so then they donate it to somewhere else or the store in Houston during the Houston floods, the furniture store that opened the doors to people who were homeless, who were had lost their homes to move into the furniture store and live in this furniture store and sleep mm -hmm. on their beds and eat on their tables and mm -hmm. sit in their couches. Yes. And it was such a manifestation of a beautiful world of love and care that had nothing to do with domination or measurement of right. success of the business. Well, see, when the Supreme Court was forced to deal with pornography, right, they ended up, right. uh, they couldn't measure it. They said, they you know they, it. <laughs> they couldn't, object, couldn't get an objective standards. And finally they said, we know it when we see it. Right. I was, okay. thinking, I was thinking of that same that's, <laughs> that's been in my mind. That's the Supreme Court coming to there, recognizing that they couldn't define pornography in a way that would be subject subjected to measurement. And so the things that are really important in life are not always subject to measurement or empirical verification. But the fear that many have who are progressives is that if they talk that language, that they will be seen as weak or even worse as feminine, right? I say worse in terms of their feeling that they will be put down because they're not strong and tough. And in fact, this has happened for many women who go into the public arena, either in the world of business or in the world of politics, that many of those women take on the same worldview uh, the dominant religion of our time that is this empiricist uh, worldview and feel like they have to show that they are tough. 
that they are that they're not about love; they're about results, right? And so, and, and, and that results, results that can be are measured, measured right? Exactly. Measurable, right? Measurable results. Yeah. So this is part of the struggle that needs to take place: is to challenge that worldview. And by the way, that worldview is a religion. How do I know it's a religion? Because by its own standard, the 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 view that says that which is real or that which can be known or is that which can be verified through sense datum or measured is a view that cannot be verified through measurement or empirical observation. It's just a belief system that people have accepted as the definition of rational behavior. But there's no verification for that. It's another religion amongst other religions, but it's the major religion of the modern world. We have a task in front of us because if we want to build a different kind of world, we need to address the hunger for love, kindness, and generosity. And at the same time, we have to then overcome the ways in which that kind of discourse is dismissed. So bringing this back to our discussion about the flow of social energy between these worldviews, I want us to take cognizant of the fact that every single one of us is part of that flow of social energy. We're a wave, if you will, in that ocean a flowing social energy from a worldview of love and interdependence to a worldview of fear and domination. And every single one of us at all times can be uplifting the possibility of creating a world based on values of love and kindness and empathy and compassion and generosity. And so each of us should feel invited, inspired, called, if you will, to use those words, to use that language, to speak about wanting a loving world, a loving world that serves all of us, not just some of us, a loving world that embraces our humanity, that embraces the awe and wonder of the universe. And for those of us involved in activism work and social change work, to start bringing that language into those circles as well. Because as we build a world that really feels loving, that is infused with these values. As we start to talk about changing the systems and structures of our society so that they are guided by, and not just guided by, but infused by, formed by, shaped by, these values of love and generosity and care, then the social energy will move from fear and domination toward love, and then the people who we experience to be so deeply steeped in the worldview of fear and domination will be pulled with us, be moved along that continuum further and further toward the worldview of love and kindness and generosity. As we close our episode today, we want to encourage you to start to speak this language and to raise this with everyone you know in all the circles that you live in. What would your workplace look like if it was infused, if the questions that were being asked was, are we bringing love into the world or fear? into the world, if your home was asking those questions, if your movements that you're involved in, if they were really steeped in that worldview, how would your heart move? How would your energy change? And how would that change the social energy of our society? And this is what we mean by imagining with us a different kind of world. The way that you can contribute to that is right now to start to challenge the cynicism, to challenge the powerful discourse by affirming a discourse of love, of caring, or what I call the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the planet. Thank you for joining us for our second episode on the series of Why Aren't More People Progressive Part 2. Please follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please share this with your friends and invite them to follow us as well. You can become engaged with our work and learn more about us at tikkun, T-I-K-K-U-N dot org and spiritualprogressives.org. We'd love to hear from you. So to reach us, please email cat, C-A-T, at spiritualprogressives.org with the subject heading, Imagine With Us. You can buy Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, at tikkun.org slash revlove. And special thanks goes out to Emma's Revolution for their amazing music. You can hear more of their music at emmasrevolution.com and you can follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.